everybody, welcome to Don't Quit Your Day Job. Uh, I mean, maybe sometimes it's okay to quit your day job, but right now, recommending to not quit your day job. Uh, my name is Paul, and today I am very excited to introduce Mr. Lauren Molinari. Did I did I say that right, Lauren? Is that the right yeah, way? Yeah, close enough. Uh, Molinari, Molinari. Okay. Uh, you know, Mol- Molinari is more uh, proper Italian, I think. Uh, okay. But yeah, yeah. Cool. It's good. How's it going? I'm, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Thanks for uh, for doing this all the way from California, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, it's cool. The, the thought of uh, talking, you know, mus- musicians and what do you do for your day job and your passion making it, I, I thought, you know, this could be fun. So I'm cool. glad to be here. Very, very good. So let's, let's jump right into it then. Um, so I got in contact with you. I was fortunate enough to get in contact with you because of my friend, Mark Tremalgia, who plays in Little Caesar with you. So maybe that's a good place to, to start this. You know, how did you, how did you hook up with, with Mark um, and, and tell us the story behind that? You know, um, well, Mark uh, and, and myself have a, a mutual friend, Paul Ill, who's a long-term uh, bass player on the LA scene. And Mark plays and uh, has been playing with Paul for probably at least 10 years. And uh, I know he played with Paul with Michael DeBars. Uh, Then they started their own band. Uh, And I I think right now it's it's called Uncle Dwayne's Band, something like that, you know. uh, But yeah, so um, and I always thought Mark was really a great guitarist and, and just a really nice guy, a sweetheart. And, um, you know, little Caesar, we're like spinal tap with the other guitar position <laughs> over the 30 years. We had seven other guitarists oh, before Mark. So, uh, you know, they kind of like, you know, they kind of disappear or discombobulate, um, <laughs> whatever, but you know, we were looking for somebody to actually kind of fit into the family. And um, I had talked to Mark uh, at least a year or two before he, he actually came into it. And the timing just the last time we had went to Europe and uh, somehow the timing didn't work. So we did the tour to Europe that, uh, with the other guitarists that we had and uh, came back talked to paul about it because you know it's it's kind of tough when you're you're kind of like asking to get somebody else's guitar player mm-hmm. to you know join your band or and at that point it was like we needed someone to go tour europe and do our late our our last album on golden robot which was uh the album was called eight and it's a great album by know, the way. oh thank you uh and, you know, Mark came in and I think we did the studio thing first. Then we went and toured um, the UK and then we went back and toured all of Europe with him. And it just was like easy, you know, and, um, you know, the thought of that he played in his other band and his other band thinking like, hey, you're playing at Caesar. I mean, in this world these days, I don't think what is permanent, you know, if you, right. if it's happening that day, then that's good. But, <laughs> you know, it's been about, I would say at least three years now. And um, it's, it's really gotten to where Mark feels like family and Caesar, you know, we're currently doing this other project together. 
the reformation of the Crusados. And Mark suggested I, I do that with Tony, the original bass player from the Crusados. Ron, the lead singer in Caesar, is also doing the vocals on this Crusados thing, which is it's really it's a lot different than Caesar. It's uh, some of the feels are a lot different than anything I've done in the past. And, um, you know, and it's, it's just great playing with Mark because we're kind of like, you know, it could be like. Keith Richards, Ron Wood kind of playing off <laughs> cool. each other, or it could be like Angus and Malcolm, you know, we kind of just interweave the guitar thing. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's just easy. And, and he's so like his knowledge on guitar as a, as you know, you go right. back one a long ways. He, I mean, it could go from rockabilly to like jam music to, you know, metal to anything. I mean, he, his, his vocabulary is just, pretty deep so that's cool is, all of that is 100 percent true um did you make him try out did you make him jump through any hoops to to join the band um <laughs> that's a great question <laughs> you know i i i i don't even really remember him trying out i'm sure he did you know i just know that we knew within the first song or so, it just was like he did his homework because, you know, a lot of guys coming in with a band like Caesar that has eight, you know, eight album catalog, you know, to try to like learn those songs note for note that maybe Earl Slick, our second guitarist, did or, or like Apache, our original guy, you know, may not really do their homework. Mark did his homework and uh, it just... It just sounded really great, and it just felt good, and it was just easy. So, like, why question it, you know? Yeah, because, you know, because I've watched uh, you guys, of course, like like many bands are doing some live stream stuff now, and, and you've done a couple, and I've watched them both. And you, uh, you have the punk rock energy, you know? You look like the cool guy, and Mark looks a little bit like, uh, is he a hippie, or, you know, what band does, what, does he think he... Is it, does he think he he's in? But the the two, as you just said, the two styles work really well together, and um, and I think your edge brings a lot to to what Mark's doing, which is a pretty cool thing to see and hear. Yeah, well, I think in a two guitar band, you, you kind of need that happening. Um, you know, the punk rock thing you say, I mean, I grew up in Detroit with like influences of like the MC5 and Ted Nugent and Iggy and the Stooges. And especially this Iggy and the Stooges and MC5 predates punk. But, you know, it's an attitude. I, I you know, I mean, then people kind of say like I'm punk rock, but then I can play very you know mellow stuff and mm-hmm. and and like waiting on a friend by the rolling stones and have wrote a lot of the ballads and caesar and stuff but yeah i think our styles mesh together really good yeah yeah so speaking of detroit let's let's take a trip back there um you know when when you think about those days and and the stooges and mc5 and all the stuff that you just mentioned what was what was the first band where you felt like, you know what, I can actually quit my day job and this band is going to do something. And, and how did the Detroit scene influence all of that stuff that you were thinking about at the time? Well, you know, the, the first real shows I saw, like when I was in maybe 10th, 10th or 11th grade was like um, 
Bob, I saw Bob Seeger in the last herd is like when he had to hit Ramblin' Gamblin' Man, mm-hmm. and he was still playing. He was playing guitar, and he was one badass motherfucker, right? So another Michigan and, guy, right? Isn't he a Michigan guy? Yeah. Well? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this band, The Frost, opened up, which was Dick Wagner, who ended up going with Alice Cooper and uh, Lou Reed. Uh, but those two bands came out to an empty club, the Hullabaloo Teen Club in Lansing, Michigan, where I grew up. And there must have been, the place held a thousand people, and there was only 20 people there oh, during a, a weekday night. And the thing that really taught me something was that you better play and act like there's 20,000 people out there regardless if there's 10 people or a million people, you know, and both those bands made a, a real serious impression on me uh, that how powerful rock and roll was and how powerful those Detroit bands were. And then I saw the MC5, what they did, uh, and it was the most powerful thing I'd ever seen. I mean, I'd, I'd never saw a band like The Who or anything like that, but I knew right then uh and the dogs my band uh we opened for the mc5 two times in their career right in 69 when their second album came out and and i realized then that uh rock and roll could be a great vehicle to you know excite people and and possibly make the world better uh and unite people so i i kind of thought then that you know i wasn't going to go to college <laughs> and i was going to like you know uh make possible hopefully the right decision but you know so were you uh, still in high school during this time when you were playing these shows yeah yeah so that's unbelievable for at least for an old punk rock guy like me to think about that you're a high school guy and you're opening for the mc5 that is just nuts to think about we used to, there used to be a Catholic high school in um, Detroit area where every Saturday they'd have MC5, Alice Cooper, Brownsville Station. We played with Brownsville Station at this high school. Uh, we were playing a lot of those those uh, Detroit gigs and frat. I used to leave school on Friday afternoon to go drive to Central Michigan University or Western Western uh, Michigan and Kalamazoo uh, to play frat parties and stuff. So, you <laughs> what, know, and what, what did uh, frats want to hear for music? <laughs> they wanted to hear cover songs, but we <laughs> knew just a handful enough to pull that off. And then we'd stick in originals because we, uh, first off, I never had to see it. Like Mark has a great knack of learning any cover song yeah. and playing it note for note. I'd never had the knack to do that and was forced like in seventh grade in my first band to write originals because out of necessity, because I, you know, I could learn the kinks, Rolling Stones, but if it was too complicated, I just didn't have the patience. So I started writing original stuff early on and, um, but we'd sneak those songs in or lie to those drunken frat guys, uh, (laughs) Oh, here's a song by 10 years after and really it was an original, you know? Oh, that's so. amazing. That's sometimes, uh, I I've done similar things, especially if it's a deep cut and people don't know the song, you just say, I do the opposite though. I just say, this is our song and it's 
some some cover that we're playing. So so yeah. I think that that's pretty funny. Uh, was this the dogs already when you were doing this stuff? Yeah, yeah. So so give yeah. us some background. Uh, so I mean, if anybody is ver- well versed in their in their punk history, they're gonna at least have heard of the dogs. So when did you start that band? And 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 okay, you got to open for the MC Five and. Were, did you get out of high school and just do this or did you get a job working at a store or, or what were you doing then? Well, uh, yeah. So the dog started in 69. Uh, we, Mary Kay on bass and uh, our first drummer, Art Phelps, Art was with us till 70 and then he left. And then we had Ron Wood, this white trash juvenile delinquent from <laughs> family was from like Tupelo, Mississippi, you know, the family had moved up North to uh, work in the factories. He joined the band and he stayed with us, uh, gee, until 80. But um, in the, in, in that time span, I was always the one in the dogs, no matter where we had moved to, I'd always get a day job, but I was assistant manager at a super test gas station in my senior year in high school. And in the year after I graduated, graduated and stuff. And that was uh, kind of gnarly, you know, it's like some <laughs> one couple of the dogs roadies worked there. It was, it was quite, uh, you know, a lot going on. You could, you could buy more than just the gasoline if you knew the, <laughs> the right thing to say. <laughs> So if if it was a bunch of guys associated with the dogs all working at the same gas station, including you as assistant manager, who was working when you had a show? Um, everybody would just take off, I guess, you know. <laughs> we all ended up getting fired, I, I'll say that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and that, that, was, that was the last gig, day gig I kind of had, I think, for – for a while, but uh, it wasn't much longer after that, that, um, and we, you know, we had band houses. We had a band house when I was still living at home in my senior year. And um, so like 71, something like the 72, we ended up moving to Detroit. We had this manager guy that brought us there and we got a 13 bedroom Victorian house wow. in the slums near Tiger Stadium. And, and this house was in just about ready to be uh, condemned. And we actually moved in, fixed it up. And so we were around there. And, and by that time, the Detroit scene had pretty much had died, you know, uh, from what it was in the late 60s and the Grandy Ballroom and whatever. Then um, we had the brilliant idea to move to New York City uh, with $600, 11 people and like six dogs with no place to go in New York. And, uh, I remember my dear old mother going, well, what are you going to do when you get to New York? And I go, we're going to make it mom. She goes, where, where are you going to live? I said, I don't know. It's cool. We'll figure it out. You know, it was like pretty naive, uh, to just hit cause you're East coast, you know, New York's a tough right. freaking city. Yeah. And um, we hit we hit the streets of New York with just you know, like what do we do now? And it was it was it was pretty uh, pretty naive and ballsy move to do. That, that is amazing. Um, and Mark and I have talked about uh, this a little bit. I I think it takes 
uh, a certain amount of courage to follow your conviction like that. So um, when I've thought about it, I certainly didn't have that sort of courage uh, to just because I love music, obviously, um, but I wasn't about to just give everything up to follow it. And that there is something wired in your brain, Lauren, if you're just going to say, fuck it, I'm going to move to New York City and and we're just going to try this. You know, can you explain that at all? What what makes you want to do that? Well, first off, I'd never let my kids do that. <laughs> you know, um, but, but, you know, we, I couldn't be told anything, you know. Um, I think, I think the reality of that is, is that when you're in a group of like-minded people that are willing to go to the edge like that and, and to hell or high water, you're just going to go do it and sort it out. Um, you, you will go do stuff like that. And um, we had always ran the band like that and attracted a bunch of misfits that believed anything was possible if you just believed it to be true, you know, right. and had faith thing. And um, so that's how we hit New York. And, and you know, it ended up we ended up uh, having enough money to rent a loft in Brooklyn, but we had no idea that people lived in lofts. We thought it was like a commercial zone where you'd like you know businesses would work and then then we had four stacks of marshals and started rehearsing in our loft and we got kicked out after a week or two not not and surprising got our money I guess. Back. yeah and then we met this off-broadway producer guy that um you ever hear the electric circus in new york that no. was a really cool club in the late 60s on saint mark's place he had taken that over for an off-off Broadway venue and they were still doing some shows there. And he said that we all could crash upstairs in the offices. So we did that for like three months and, you know, did some couple shows at the electric circus and kind of, you know, it, it really like, that was New York dolls time. They had been signed <laughs> right, yeah. pre, pre CBGBs, but it really um, opened our eyes up. Uh, it got to the point where we in, went back to Detroit because it just financially, we couldn't survive there. And we went back to kind of regroup in Detroit for uh, four or five months, did a lot of shows uh, around uh, the Midwest, and then went back to New York in the spring of 74. And then we had played with... Um, kiss we met kiss under these under these strange circumstances and uh, played with television at max's kansas city and met debbie harry and you know uh the whole we played auditioned at cbgb's and got kicked out because we played too loud and um you know so it was it was um it was pretty cool because we got to really see the beginning stages of that new york scene right. which Everyone says it's punk, but I mean, Talking Heads was so arty and different than Kiss. Uh, and then you had the Dictators, which was kind of frat boy punk rock, right. you know. Uh, they were the cousins of Blue Oyster Cult, I think. And um, so it was a very eclectic scene, television being kind of arty, too. And um, so it was it was. Um, it was really cool to be there, but it still was wearing thin on us to be able to survive, even though we ended up getting our own apartment 
and a place the roadies lived where all our gear was um, stored, we decided to go back to Detroit. And then, um, you know, we got blackballed in Michigan. That's why we moved to New York anyway, because we'd caused so much trouble um, with, and the booking agencies refused to book the dogs, you know? And um, so we ended up uh, deciding we'll go down to tour in Florida. And that was like early 75 and disco was just starting to happen. And then we were getting fired at every, a lot of cities because we played too loud and fast, you know? Why don't you just turn your amps down, Lauren? Hey, you know, I mean, that's our vibe, you know, we can't turn down. That's, that's our tone, you know? Our sound guy used to say, you don't need two stacks. You can just play, use one stack. But, you know, I mean, to us, it was like those stacks represented, you know, a big fuck you to authority. Right. You know? right. So. Yeah, I get that. Let's take one step back to <clears throat> that first time you got the uh, the Victorian mansion in Detroit. You're still a young, you're still a kid. Um, what's running through your mind? Are, are you thinking like whatever's in the moment is the important thing right now? Or are you already thinking about here's what we can do with the band? I mean, it's just got to be super exciting to move into a place with a bunch of your buddies and be free. Yeah. Well, that was the third band house we already had, but being in Detroit, you know, uh, and to have that kind of historic venue, all three dogs houses burnt down. That's really <laughs> odd too, after the fact, but, um, you know, we, we, the good thing about it, that was like, that helped us get to New York because we left Lansing, which was a hundred miles away. And um, we were getting kind of ready to, to start traveling, you know, mm -hmm. and because we knew, we knew that we always ultimately wanted to get a record deal. And we felt like that we needed to go to New York or go to Detroit to, you know, going to Detroit was to be more around that, Detroit scene, you know, yeah. and get to play with those bands and, and, um, everything. So, uh, and the same was true about New York, but we, a lot of times those early that first trip to New York playing to A&R guys, you know, like we played to Murray Krugman who produced Blue Oyster Cult's first records and signed them to Columbia. Oh, and he came, to see, he came to see us in this small room at the electric circus that we rehearsed in and just, like was like a dead fish, you know, you just like didn't you're playing to the A and R guy, you know, and they're like looking at you. There's no they're not going like, hey bro, you guys sound great, you know. And we kind of like couldn't handle those showcase things, you know, and we blew a few of them because we weren't ready for what you're supposed to face when you do that, you know. And I mean can you imagine being an actor, all the cattle calls that actor actors do and just being not acceptive for roles. I mean, that sense of rejection can be devastating yeah. to a, 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 a young actor or musician, I feel. Yeah, you know? I definitely get that. Um, okay, so I'm going to let's do one more question and we'll leave uh, we'll leave this episode for today and then and then pick it up. But um, let's jump ahead to present day. Um, are you are you working a day job? You know, everything is shut down now. You can't do shows. I know Little Caesar had a big tour and our cruise canceled and all of that. So how how is someone like you with all of your history getting by right now? Well, luckily for me, um, 
you know, I, I've been working through the pandemic. I've been, uh, my, my current, uh, place of employment is Korg USA. Uh, and, um, you know, I've been there for 11 years, started as the product manager, uh, for Blackstar before the Korg thing I brought helped bring Blackstar to America. Currently, um, I do artist relations for all Korg related brands, but during the pandemic, we obviously, the company's still working remote. I have an office at Center Staging Studios in Burbank. We're like the voice and, um, you know, Paul McCartney, ACDC, Stones, and Lady Gaga, those kind of acts were hers, but the uh, artist relations offices for several companies are there. And uh, I just started going back to the office a few months ago and stuff. And, you know, a lot, there are industries that during the pandemic have done well, Amazon and, you know, quite a few companies, uh, but the music industry that manufacturing instruments have broken all sales records because everyone's locked at home. Right. And they want to play, you know, or, or I always, I wanted to, I always learned to play, you know, drums or synth or acoustic or electric. And so sales have been just breaking all sales records here. Yeah. I've been buying pedals like crazy and I'm hoping that one day, one of these pedals that I buy is going to make me sound like Mark Tremalgia, for example. (laughs) Yeah. I just got one in the mail today from Reverb. I just bought an Archer uh j archer overdrive yeah that's cool uh, those clon type drives yeah those are those yeah are, those are cool yeah uh very quickly then so what's your what's your current setup in little caesar you still les paul marshall guy or semi hollow no i you know i had a, a gold top a 1980 reissue gold top that uh i called the hog it was like super heavy it mm-hmm. was great but got too heavy for me. So I've been the last almost 20 years, uh, a white SG standards been my thing okay, cool. uh, because it's a little lighter. Uh, you know, Mark plays a maroon one uh, sometimes, but I'll do that. Or I've got a Rickenbacker 620. Um, I've got a Les Paul special TV yellow that I use. I've got a 62 Strat that kind of stays in the closet but my main guitar is an sg i just had it refretted and just set up and i I just bought the new um epiphone reissues of the crestwood and uh all those kind of 60s uh reissues i just bought the the white crestwood with a a kind of bigsby on it and are you playing black stars i i for a while i gigged with uh black star club 40 for sure Oh yeah, it's a great, great combo. You yeah. can get anything from like a Fender to a Marshall. No, yes, I um, um, like on the last Caesar stream, we all, we Mark and I will use the thirty watt hand wired Artisan thirty heads on a two by twelve with greenbacks, and um, it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, it's chimey like an AC thirty, but then it's like a it's like a thirty watt plexi, you know? Yeah, and so. Um, you know, and I've got, I've got, I've got all my vintage Marshalls from I got a '77 JMP and a 1980 JCM 800 212 combo. So, and I've got some AC, AC 30, AC 15. So, depending on what uh, the gig is, I'll pull out whatever guitar I am, yeah. like you. Cool, absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, we'll leave it there for today's episode. Uh, thanks very much to everyone who's listening. Please continue to listen. Tell your friends. Please like and subscribe. Please rate us because it really helps out. Um, and I want to thank Lauren for, for starting to do this. Um, I think uh, it's amazing. He's going to have a ton of stories for everyone to hear. So I'm, I'm really excited about this. Lauren, thanks very much. I appreciate it, man. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for asking me, Paul. Right on. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Cheers.